I hope that you will meet me with an open Bible in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, as we look together at verses 8 to 17. There is a deep-seated desire in you and in me and in all of us to make sense of life, especially when life seems chaotic, when it seems crazy, and we wonder, why is this happening, and why is this happening now? And for those who ascribe to any belief in God or to any higher power, we're looking for, where is God in that? What is God doing in these circumstances? That desire is in you and in me, regardless of whether or not we believe in God or go to church. We want to make sense of life. But as we try to satisfy that desire, we often fall into the trap we see in David, King David, where we receive a word from God, we receive some sign or confirmation that there is a higher power, that there is good, that there is a God, that this God is at work in us and around us, and then we think, there's God. There he is. And we limit and we confine God to that word or to that experience or that place. We pin God down. But what David learns here and what we need to learn is that the God who reveals himself through his word to us right now by the power of his Holy Spirit is unpinnable. You cannot pin this God down. David tried. David is sitting in comfort in his palace, made out of cedar wood. He looks and he sees the golden ark of God symbolizing his presence with his people. And he says to himself, there's something wrong with this picture. It's wrong that I'm living in this comfort and the ark of God is surrounded by tents. That's not permanent enough. That's not worthy enough for this God. And so David plans to build a house for God, a temple for God. He explains it to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan's initial response is, go for it. Whatever you choose to do, God is with you, go for it. And then God speaks to Nathan in the middle of the night, and he speaks a message for King David. And you see this in verse 5. God says, are you, meaning David, the one to build me a house? And, and the way that you and me is placed in this sentence is emphatic. Are you the one to build me a house? Is that what you think of me? You think I can be confined to a building? And he continues, I haven't had a house since the time I brought my people out of Egypt until now. And did I ever say to any of the leaders of my people, I need a house? No, I never said that. God is showing David, and God is showing us now, that he cannot be pinned down. As much as we want to, as much as we try, he cannot be pinned down. And that's a really good thing. This is wonderful, transforming truth for your life and for mine. 
And so here's what we need to see over and above everything else today. God's presence cannot be pinned down to any place, to any project, to any period, or to any politician. But he promises his presence to anyone who bows down to King Jesus, his chosen king. He cannot be pinned down to any one place or to any one project or to any one period of time or season or to any one political figure. But he promises his presence to anyone who bows down before his chosen king. So let's look at the example of David and see what God is teaching us about what it means to avoid trying to pin him down and to bow down to his king. So we pick up our reading verses 8 to 9. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Notice the transition from verse 7 to verse 8. Now then, now then, in view of the fact that I cannot be pinned down to any building, that I cannot be confined to any one location, here's what you are to tell my servant David. And what the Lord Almighty, literally the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, the Lord of power, what he emphasizes is the I. God has taken the initiative in David's life. God has brought David where he is now, all the way from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. God is the one who has been at work. I took you. I appointed you ruler. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And now... I'm about to make your name, your reputation, your renown, your fame great among the names of the greatest men on earth. I'm about to do all of that. But it starts by recognizing that God is the one who has done all of this. And in this review of David's past, God is showing that David cannot take any credit for where he is. And God is showing David you think that I need a house? <laughs> you think that's something I need from you? David, I don't need your favors. I don't need anything or anyone. I do as I please. And this isn't about what you're doing for me. This is about what I'm doing in you and through you. And I've been the one who's brought you to this point, and I'm the one who is still not done with you yet and who has greater things ahead. You'll also note 
in the second half of verse 9, now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. We should hear echoes here of the promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, where he told him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise, don't miss this, this promise is the stackpole around which every single other promise of God in the scriptures is to be placed. This is it. And when God makes this promise to David to make his name great, and as we'll see, to make his name great by establishing an eternal kingdom led by an eternal king, God is specifying the way in which he's going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham. He's going to do it by means of a king and a kingdom, by extending his rule. That's how he's going to make a great name for his people, for himself, and how he's going to bless the nations. We need to see that. That is absolutely important. And unless we get a handle on that promise, we're not going to understand who Jesus is, why Jesus came into the world, and what Jesus came to do. It's absolutely vital. But what we need to highlight in verses 8 to 9 is that God is saying, you can't contain me, David. I don't fit in its, inside of any building or box. I'm bigger than that, and I have bigger plans for you. And so what we need to see today is this. Stop pinning God down to any place and start bowing in worship wherever he shows up. Bow and worship wherever he shows up. But so often, we limit God to a building, do we not? We say, this is the house of the Lord. This is where we meet the Lord. This is where we worship the Lord. And we do that on a, a particular day of the week at a particular time, and that's our encounter with God for the week. But here's the reality. It is good and it is right for God's people together. It's good and it's right. He wants us to. And it's good and it's right for them to have a place together. We are thankful for the buildings that God provides for us. We don't want to take them for granted. But consider the New Testament church. Consider the book of Acts. When the apostles go around and they found churches, do they ever say, now, the first thing you need to do is get an architect and a contractor and you need to build a building? Do they ever say that? No. And they turned the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them. Do we see that same power now? Maybe we are too dependent 
on our facilities for our own good. Maybe we do that because we have confined God. Maybe we think that we can pin God down because it's so much easier, right, to have a a centralized location where you can meet God and then you can go about your business the rest of the week and you can check that box off for the week. You've done that. You've done your thing. And we think God says, all right, well done, well done, yes. No, no. This is a God who is everywhere. And this is a God who shows up whenever and wherever he pleases. Our role is to bow down and worship wherever he chooses to show up. And that might happen in your living room. It might happen in your kitchen. It might happen when you're driving in your car. And if nothing else good comes out of this season that we're in right now, in this pandemic, may we become less dependent on our facilities and more dependent upon the presence of God. God tells David, you can't fit me in a building. David, don't try. Bow down and worship. Accept what I'm about to do in you and through you. But God's promises don't stop with David. Look at verse 10. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God is saying, David, you are my chosen king, and through you, I am going to bless my people. I'm going to give them rest from their enemies. I'm going to bring them into a place which is not limited to a geographic place. This is a spiritual condition for their good and for his glory, where they will have rest and security and stability, something they have been longing for for generations. And he's going to do that by giving them a stable, faithful leader, the king, not the king they deserve, but the king they need, the king they need, a man after God's own heart. God's going to do that. But David may be thinking, I thought we already had that. You go back to verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. David may have been thinking, well, okay, we took care of the Philistines. Don't have to worry about them anymore. The villainous king Saul, who's been trying to kill David and who hounded him and hounded him for years, is now dead. His son, Ishbosheth, is dead, the rival king. And Saul's general, Abner, is dead. And so David is probably thinking, I have arrived. This is it. I'm finally safe 
and secure. Now it's time to get comfortable. Now it's time to go sit in a cushioned pew and relax, finally. And God is showing him here, David, you're not done, and I'm not done working in you and through you. More enemies will come. More challenges will arise. Get ready. I still have more work for you to do for the sake of my people Israel. But he's giving him the assurance that he will have success. He will give David rest. And here's what we need to know. What we need to see here. We need to stop pinning God down to a project. And we need to start bowing down in obedience to whatever he commands us to do. Stop trying to pin God down to a particular project. However worthy, however worthwhile, however good. And start bowing down to the work that he places before us. We can't ever afford to get self-satisfied in our Christian walk. And to think we have arrived. It's not over until it's over. God still has work for his people to do as long as they have breath in their lungs. Do you believe that? Or do you think, well, we're finally done with that? After I've delivered this sermon, there's a satisfying feeling. Okay, now I can relax. Oh, wait. Sunday. Sunday's going to come. I can't afford to just rest back and say, all right, I'm done. And you think of the work in a church. You serve on a committee or in a particular ministry. You go on a mission trip and you think, yes, God, we saw you at work and it was powerful. It was mighty. We are so thankful. That's great. But don't pin God down to that and think that you're done and you're ready for your crown. You're ready to receive your plaque or your trophy. No! God's not done. Don't become self-satisfied. Then we look at the second half of verse 11. Here's what God says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that God doesn't say the Lord himself will build a house for you. That's what David has been saying. God says in the second half of verse 11, the Lord himself will establish a house for you, which signals that what God is doing is bigger and more permanent and more astounding than anything David can imagine. This isn't about just building a building. God doesn't need David to do that. If God wants a building, he can do that through people like Herod the Great 
He doesn't need a godly, faithful person to build him a building. But, if you look at verse 13, he says emphatically, he, that is, the one who is to come, in this case, most immediately, Solomon, Solomon, the son of David who is yet to be born. He is the one who will build a house for my name. There will be a house, but it will not be David's doing. It will be his son's doing. But there will be a house, and it will not be a house that contains God's presence. It's for his name. It's a house that magnifies his reputation and his glory and his fame. For my name, not for me, not for my presence, but for my name. And notice also in verse 12 that God is inviting David to look beyond his own life. When your days are over, in other words, when you're dead and you're not on the scene of history anymore and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up. Even when you're dead and you're gone, I will raise up. I will keep working. I will put my king on the throne, and it will be someone from your own flesh and blood, from your own house, and I will establish his kingdom. We have a hard time with this because we are so fixated on our own lives and what is immediately in front of us. But God's promises to his people, as shown here in his promises to David, his unique, singular promises that he made to David, it shows us that God's work in this world cannot be pinned down to any period of time. It can't be pinned down to any season. And so you need to know, stop pinning God down to any period, any season of life, and instead bow down, bow down in gratitude with thankfulness for however long he gives you life. Gratitude for however long he gives you life. And again, it's not over till it's over. But you can see how people struggle with this and fall into this trap on either end of the life spectrum. I meet with plenty of younger people who think that involvement in a local church is something that older people do. And they're busy. They have a career. They have kids. They have soccer. They have all kinds of stuff to be doing. And they think, maybe down the road, I'll get more involved in church. Maybe down the road, when I don't have so many obligations, then I'll get more committed, and then I'll develop the habit of worship. People think, well, maybe when I have kids, I want my kids to be involved in church. So maybe then. And then all the busyness happens, and it doesn't happen. And then you see it on the opposite end of the life spectrum, where people think, I've done my time in church. I have my plaque. I have my trophy. 
I've ser served on umpteen committees. I've been on mission trips. I've done all this. I've done my time. It's time for the next generation to step up. We cannot afford to think that way or to talk that way, to pin God down to a particular period or season and think that that's when God is at work. That's when I'll start paying attention to God. That's when I'll start getting my spiritual house in order. No, you don't know how long you have. You need to think about the fact that you will die. It's not something we want to think about. We want to avoid thinking about that. We want to put that off and focus on living, right? But it's not until you can live with the reality that God puts squarely before David, that you will die. There will come a time when you are no longer king of Israel. And are you living with gratitude now for the time you have? Whether it's short or long, are you grateful for the opportunities that God has placed in your life? Or are you squandering them and taking them for granted? Are you investing in your kids now? They will be gone and out of your house before you know it. Are you investing in the spiritual welfare of your children? Are you telling them about God's promises? Are you modeling for them who God is? The time flies. Don't squander it. Don't take it for granted. Don't pin God down to any particular season or period. The time is now. God is at work now. Are we responsive and are we grateful? But God's not done yet. Look at verse 14. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. In verse 14, God gets more specific about this one who is to sit on the throne. And he says that his relationship with this king is going to be different than his relationship with Saul. Whereas Saul was disobedient and was rejected, cast away and punished, God's relationship with this king will be as a father and his son where God does punish the son when he's disobedient, but he never, ever cuts off his son. And this idea of, of God being a father to the king has echoes in when God adopts the people of Israel as his very own. As he says to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, Verse 23, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. 
So I will kill your firstborn son. God is like a father to his people. He sets his love and his, his affection upon them. And there is nothing and there is no one who can change that relationship. Yes, there will be discipline, but it will not result in casting them away. And God is saying that with this son that you're going to have, and with this dynasty that I am building through you, it's not that there's going to be any more obedience or any less disobedience. Solomon and the other sons of David will be just as disobedient as Saul. They, there's nothing to commend them to God. They're no better than Saul or Ishbosheth. But God's relationship with them will be entirely different. He will not cast them away. This house, this kingdom will endure forever. Notice the repetition of forever in verse 16. Forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But as we know, history seemed to prove this promise wrong. You think of all the sons of David that came and went. You think of all the disobedience that was present through the rest of this history. You think of all the political leaders that would seem to snuff out this promise. We have the Assyrians. We have the Babylonians. We have the Persians. We have the Greeks led by Alexander the Great. We have the Romans. These leaders come and go, and it would seem that God's promise is null and void. But that flickering word was never snuffed out. And the prophets kept this promise and this hope alive. Isaiah says in chapter 11, there will be a root that comes up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. There will be a root, there will be life, there will be a ruler who comes from what seems to be dead and done. And here's what you need to know today in light of this truth, in, in light of God saying, I'm making a promise and I'm going to keep my promise, but I'm not telling you exactly how long it's going to take for this eternal throne to be made known or to be fully established. You need to know this. Stop pinning God down to any one politician and start bowing down to his chosen king. Right now, we are surrounded by voices that are telling us that the upcoming election is life or death. That if this candidate is elected, it's the end of the world. Or if this candidate is not elected, it's the end of the world. And I want you to hear me say, we 
as God's people now, cannot afford to buy into that hysteria. Because that's exactly what it is. It's hysteria. We cannot afford to go there. We know better. Because God has promised us better. There is no one and there is nothing who can push this God off of His throne. He is sovereign. He is in control. And He will be glorified. He will be exalted. Whatever the outcome of this election. Don't pin God down. Don't think that this politician or this platform or this party is the be-all or the end-all. They're not. God is sovereign. And He can and He will accomplish His purposes with or without us. And this may blow your mind, but I guess you realize the fate of the world does not hinge upon the fate of the United States of America. It's humbling to accept that because we love our country. We're grateful for our country. We serve our country. We, we take elections seriously. We do our part. But we know that we can't pin God down to any particular political movement. These things come and go just as they did for God's people Israel. But God, in the end, will have his way. He will establish his king on his throne. And that throne and that kingdom will last forever. But whereas David looked forward to see the fulfillment of God's promise, we today look back And we know that this promise is not just an abstract promise. This king has a name. Just consider the very first words of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king. And who is he? He's the son of David, who is the son of Abraham, hearkening back to Genesis 12. God keeps his promises. He is faithful. He has delivered. He has made good on this in Jesus Christ. But not only is he the son of David. Consider Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, With him, I am well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. In Jesus, every promise of God is yes and amen. Yes and amen. He is the one 
But you say, what about that part about punishing this king when he does wrong? Remember, Jesus never sinned, but he did learn obedience through what he suffered because he was fully human, just as you are. And he did learn obedience, even to the point of death on the cross. And though he had no sin, he knew no sin, God made him sin, made him to stand in the place of sin, and he did so willingly so that through him, we might become the righteousness of God, so that through him, we might be able to call God Father. So that in Christ, we might have God say to us, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. That can be said of you today. But whether or not that's said to you hinges on a conversation Jesus has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. He says, who do people say I am? And various answers. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. They think you're a great man. And Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Christ, the one who was promised in 2 Samuel 7, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And don't miss this part. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Not only does God fulfill his promise by sending King Jesus, he also fulfills his promise by building through King Jesus with Jesus as the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles, beginning with Peter's confession. On this rock, I will build my church. You want permanence. You want stability. You want to know what God is doing in the world. You want to know what God is doing in your life. He is building his church. He is assembling his people under King Jesus and his lordship. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you belong? It hinges on what you say about Jesus. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I would both confess today that Jesus is Lord of all. He is King. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And we will do as he pleases. We won't limit God. We won't pin him down. We will bow down to God's chosen king. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we confess that so often we doubt your promises. We doubt your goodness. And in the midst of all the chaos and the trouble and the problems of life, We get so confused and we get so down. But I thank you for your word that speaks truth and that reveals your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us. 
showing us that this isn't a matter of, of trying to find you. You find us. You claim us. You choose us. And we are so grateful. You pursue your people. And so I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would be humbled by your greatness and by your goodness and that we would bow down to your chosen king, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that all your promises have a name, Jesus. We claim that name. We look to that name. We stand on that name. Come what may. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're so glad that you could join us for this online worship service. If you have any questions, be sure to reach out by email. We pray that God blesses you and your family and gives you a wonderful week.